0: welcome to State of Minds from the University of California. Tonight we have four stories to present, each in its own way demonstrating the university's commitment to research, teaching, and public service. From UC Davis, a story on chronic pain and how doctors there are teaching patients to manage it without becoming addicted to drugs. From UC San Francisco, the link between climate change and an increase in asthma. And from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, the search for exotic medicines in the tropics of Panama. But first, from UC Berkeley, a program on global poverty and why it has drawn such a wide cross-section of students. More now from Roxanne McCostin. When I first came to UC Berkeley, I was very
1: intimidated. I mean, this is a very big name school. People are so intelligent coming from so many different parts of the country and the world, and, and I was very quiet. Lauren Valdez
2: came to Berkeley to study architecture, but she eventually realized she wanted to do more than what was offered in the standard course curriculum.
1: By the time I got to my more elevated years in architecture school, I felt that something was kind of missing. Um, I didn't really like this kind of egotistical, like elitist architectural thinking, but that's what moved me to the Global Poverty and Practice minor is I saw the way the process of architecture could be used towards global development.
2: Lauren's talking about the two-year-old program at Berkeley called Global Poverty and Practice.
3: It's not about engineering alone, about malnutrition. It's very, very complicated.
2: Students take courses on the problem of poverty and are also required to produce a hands on project to alleviate poverty somewhere in the world. Lauren and her classmate Nicole Walter chose Bolivia. <coughs> They designed and built handicapped accessible walkways at a rural orphanage and farm to better accommodate its disabled workers.
1: It was so eye-opening to see that that process move from something being on paper to something being built and seeing how it affects the people who use those things. The Global
2: Poverty and Practice Program is part of the Blum Center for Developing Economies, established with a $15 million grant from real estate developer and UC Regent Richard Blum.
4: Most people don't live anywhere as well as we live. We have an obligation not only to help them because it's the right thing to do, but in the end of the day, grinding poverty and ignorance is a destabilizing factor that can
5: eventually hurt us all.
2: Already in just two years, Global Poverty and Practice has become Berkeley's fastest growing minor with about 300 students. The introductory course grew from about 200 students in 2007 to a capacity enrollment of 724 this year.
6: What I love about the growth of the minor is that it has reached students in a wide variety of disciplines and professions.
2: City and Regional Planning Professor Ananya Roy is in charge of the curriculum for the Global Poverty Program.
1: Orphans whose mothers were infected.
2: The extensive coursework required for the minor includes the study of various models of poverty alleviation and training on the history and condition of the particular region of the student's project.
5: They have to do what they have to do in order to. To put food on the table, in order to educate their children.
2: Roy says that's what makes these students different from the average global volunteer.
6: What we've been able to do with the minor is to bookend that experience by having students before they head out really think about what they're going to be doing and why, and in difficult and critical ways. And when they return to reflect upon what they are doing and how what they, the experience they've had in the field may have possibly transformed their own professional goals. That's exactly
2: what Jonathan Lee says happened to him. As a public health major, he spent a summer vacation as a volunteer in healthcare clinics in Honduras.
7: And I was really shocked at what I had seen um, in the clinics as well as outside of the clinics that we set up. Um, And I kind of came back really angry and frustrated um, at what I had seen and very almost helpless.
2: Returned to campus, Jonathan was excited to find the global poverty and practice minor. Now armed with much more knowledge, he went back to Honduras with a two-pronged project: to educate Hondurans on basic hygiene, sanitation, and nutrition, and to train healthcare workers in communities that are too far from healthcare centers. His goal was to help develop a lasting health care system that would begin to relieve people of their dependency on outside volunteers.
1: The
7: Global Poverty minor has really helped me not only help other people, but it's also kind of helped me find myself. It's really shaped, I guess, um, everything that I'm interested in now and it's, and it's really supplemented it as well.
2: In fact, Jonathan spent last semester working with other students who are preparing their global poverty projects, providing first-hand advice on what to expect and how to prepare. And he heard a further call to action when the Blum Center invited the Dalai Lama to campus.
5: I'm one of the six billion human beings,
7: nothing special. So each of us has some moral responsibility to think well-being of the six million human beings, because we are part of that. The individual's future must depend on the rest of the six million human beings' well-being.
2: Go, Soon, the Global Poverty in Practice program will have a home of its own. At the recent Blum Center groundbreaking ceremony, Al Gore discussed the significance of such a program.
5: What has made this so exciting is the demonstrated commitment of the student body here to this curriculum. I will predict for you that this will quickly become a center of global importance.
2: The ambitious vision of the Blum Center has taken root quickly and more firmly than
6: even its initiators had expected. The consent initially was, well, who would be crazy enough to do this minor? That it would be a boutique minor with a handful of students. But I think over and over again, Berkeley students have shown that the more we challenge them, the more they live up to and exceed those challenges.
2: From UC Berkeley, this is
0: Roxanne Makashtian. Next to the Medical Center at UC Davis, Paul Fotenhauer takes us into the Pain Management Clinic where doctors are dealing with patients who want prescriptions for the drugs they've seen advertised on television.
7: When George Mironeco hurt his back in a work accident years ago, the constant throbbing pain continued long after the injury itself had healed. In fact, the back pain got worse over time for the Folsom, California resident. He couldn't sit, lay down, or walk without excruciating pain. His doctors prescribed drugs and even spinal surgery, but the pain persisted. Then George's problems went from bad to worse. He became addicted to painkillers.
8: I got to a point where I was taking 24 hydrocodones, which is, would be equivalent to 48 Vicodins.
7: Today, George's pain is under control thanks to pain patches. Addiction to prescription painkillers is a growing problem across the United States. In fact, experts say abuse of prescription drugs today now outpaces illicit drug use. Vicodin, Oxycontin and Demerol, narcotic pain medications that get their patients hooked, even as they continue taking the drugs at prescribed levels and yet those same experts say doctors don't know as much as they need to about their patients pain and how to treat it.
9: Pain is the most common reason a patient goes to a doctor um, and yet it's not widely taught to medical students or to training doctors. Um, We're not taught about what pain is, how to treat it or about the complications of the treatments.
7: Fishman is a leading pain medicine clinician, researcher, and is the chief of the Division of Pain Medicine at the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento.
9: The most abused prescription drugs out there right now are opioids. These are the morphine type drugs, the um, uh, Vicodin, Percocet, or Hydrocodone, Hydromorphone, Morphine, fentanyl type medications, but what we've seen is really a, a public health crisis of prescription drug abuse as the street abusers have shifted from illicit drugs to abusing prescription drugs.
7: Fishman says that while celebrities who are addicted to painkillers get a lot of headlines and publicity, the problem is just as prevalent among common folks we see at work, at the store, and at the gym. And these folks have another thing in common with celebrities. They collect and fill multiple prescriptions through doctor shopping.
9: And what we're seeing is that there's a uh, much higher amount of doctor shopping than we ever thought. That's multiple providers of the same prescription being uh, sought after by uh, patients then to be filled at, at different pharmacies, none of which are known to each other.
7: Recently, the largest analysis ever done of state prescriptions for controlled substances showed that California is home to a very high rate of patients who get the same prescription for the same painkillers from a number of doctors.
8: When you're taking the medication um, uh, be aware not to drive or drink any alcohol.
7: They then get those scripts filled at multiple pharmacies within 30 days. The research spurred California Attorney General Jerry Brown to tighten the state's prescription medication tracking system. The reforms will help authorities identify those who use pseudonyms and aliases to illegally obtain controlled drugs, as well as the doctors who enable users. Some educators today are saying that doctors and medical students need additional training on how to diagnose and treat pain. They say the additional training will help reduce addiction among pain sufferers. You spend up to what you've got. Michael Wilkes has an international reputation for innovation in medical education.
4: In medical school, um, we do a great job of teaching medical students about the physiology of pain, uh, where pain comes from, how it's transmitted, um, the the chemicals that are involved. Your question is really, do we teach about the management of pain? And the answer is a, a very sad no.
7: What complicates the treatment of pain for doctors is the marketing done by pharmaceutical companies. It has been reported that drug companies spend about five billion dollars a year advertising prescription drugs to consumers. UC Davis research has revealed that primary care physicians say their patients often ask for a drug they see advertised on television. There's a lot of medicine that's practiced in sort of a a gray zone where correct decisions really are driven by patient preferences, and so quite a a surprising amount um, of clinical care is probably um, affected by what patients ask of their doctors.
4: Uh, We don't want to say no because we're rated on our patients' satisfaction. That's partly how we're reimbursed. We also have this bond with our patients. We don't want to disappoint them.
7: It takes time, and time is one thing doctors, especially in primary care, don't have a lot of. TV drug ads do serve a legitimate purpose, according to a UC Davis expert on pharmaceutical marketing.
8: I mean, You need uh, consumers
7: to be sufficiently educated before you feed them with uh, information which they can on their own learn before they go to the doctors the marketing of it is uh, not itself to be blamed some doctors some patients might abuse that privilege but it's just like having a fire which helps you cook but it can also burn uc davis medical students say they have already experienced the challenges that doctors face in knowing how to manage pain
5: we know the physiology pretty well but the actual management of it is difficult and i think it varies from supervisor to supervisor and so, really what we learn is from, is from them and it differs from, from person to person. So I wouldn't say it's consistent to be sure.
3: You know, the choice of medications really did uh, depend upon what doctor I was working with. And I think, you know, it kind of left me with not a clear idea of where my idea of how to treat pain would be.
7: As more training is sought, pain experts are using another effective tool to attack the problem, pain management clinics. The one at the UC Davis Medical Center sees about 12,000 patients a year. Pain management is an emerging discipline. It didn't even exist 30 years ago.
9: I think what we're doing, which is is special, is bringing in all of these different doctors who are all trained in this discipline of pain medicine but come from different fields and are informed by different perspectives that are cross-fertilized. So that's our joint. I mean, that's what that's telling us. I'm gonna put a little more numbing medicine there, okay?
7: These doctors rarely eliminate the pain entirely because pain is tied directly to sensation. and Fishman says sensation is necessary for quality of life.
9: When the alarm system of pain is broken, that's when the symptom of pain becomes a disease in and of itself. That's when chronic pain becomes a chronic disease.
7: George Maraneco turned the corner on pain when he went to this pain management clinic.
9: Well, George's case, I think, represents what many patients go through in that um, they've seen multiple practitioners who have looked at part of the problem and treated part of the problem. The problem is that part of the problem isn't enough of an answer. He required somebody who would pull it all together and see that he had a problem with his spine, he had a problem with his muscles, um, he needed medical management, he needed support.
6: I have witnessed my husband laying in fetal position. For over a year, he was completely helpless and he barely could get up. It was a change from uh, a person who was, if you can say, a baby completely dependent on me to a person who is right now enjoying life.
7: Within the last couple of years, the underlying anatomy of pain has become clearer and treatments have become more effective. The pain medicine of tomorrow is expected to bring lots of relief to people who are suffering today. (laughs) Love you. Paul Fotenauer. reporting in Davis.
0: And now to the Bay Area. Larissa Brannan reports on new research establishing a connection between asthma and climate change.
1: There's been a lot of research focusing on the effects of climate change on the environment, but scientists at the University of California are also looking into its effects on human health. Dr. John Baums, a professor of environmental health at the University of California Berkeley and a professor of medicine at the University of California San Francisco, says pollution in the state of California is already high and climate change is going to make it worse.
4: Two of the air pollutants are going to go up Uh, ozone and particulate matter, and particulate matter is soot. The ozone is going to go up because of the direct effects of the increased temperatures that we're going to have in California, especially during the summer months. The more sun, the more hot days, the more ozone. So ozone is going to go up with all of the climate change models. Particulate matter is going to increase because of increased energy consumption during really hot days as we need to air condition our homes and schools and buildings."
1: At his UCSF lab, Bombs conducts controlled human exposure studies using a chamber where participants are exposed to pollutants under controlled conditions.
4: In the real world, there's always a mixture of pollutants. Ozone, particulate matter, oxides of nitrogen, so it's hard to Pinpoint in the real world how much of an effect is due to one versus the other. We can expose people only to ozone and compare that to exposure to clean air. And so we've done a number of studies with adults with asthma, exposing them to ozone, exposing them to different types of particulate matter, exposing them to oxides of nitrogen, and sometimes exposing them to the combination of ozone and an allergen. Like I said, With climate change, we're going to have increases of both ozone and allergen, and it turns out that ozone in advance of exposure to allergen makes the asthmatic airway more sensitive to the allergen. We've studied that in the laboratory and shown that ozone enhances the effects of allergen in causing asthma exacerbations.
1: Dr. Bombs is also involved in a study looking into traffic exposure and lung function in adult asthmatics.
4: I expected to see lower lung function in people that live near major roadways, like a freeway. We found that. But what we also found, and this was surprising, is just living close to any road uh, lowered lung function. That study result makes me think that we really have to get away from diesel vehicles as much as possible or figure out a way to make diesel vehicles really clean, which is, I think, uh, doable.
1: In fact, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District is already doing just that. At a recent event at the Port of Oakland, they announced a 22 million dollar program to install exhaust filters to reduce particulate emissions from diesel trucks in the busy West Oakland area.
4: The technology is a a retrofit device that is a a catalyst technology that has recently become available. About two or three years ago, uh, the technology evolved to the point that we now have the ability to install on trucks given the airflow that will catalyze the uh, diesel particulate, remove it from the air, and it uh, is effective to as much as 85 percent reduction.
0: What we saw in the white hanky demonstration is all of the soot and particulate matter that comes from the exhaust of those trucks to see what a remarkable difference is between all that soot, and you can imagine what that does to one's lungs and to one's health, and to see the drastic improvement in basically reducing the emissions, you know, so completely. It's it's really quite incredible. Um, so we know that this kind of investment is um, something we could commit to, and also something that we Know we should do to get to cleaner air sooner rather than later.
1: For John Bombs, the sooner the better in terms of policy changes to curtail traffic-related pollution and lessen its effects on the environment and our health.
4: The outdoor environment's getting cleaner in lots of ways. There's really less ozone and less particulate matter than there used to be. We're making progress, but there still is more traffic than there used to be, and. Maybe we're controlling the wrong things or not controlling everything we need to when it comes to traffic. So I hope that the message that there are public health impacts of climate change will help galvanize public support around efforts to control greenhouse gas emissions and control climate change.
1: In Oakland, I'm Larissa Brannan.
0: And finally tonight, preserving biodiversity in remote places as a source for potential new medicines. Wendy Hunter-Parker shares what Scripps oceanographers have found in the tropics of Panama.
8: Around the world, locations that remain free from human influence are disappearing. From rainforest jungles to the deep sea, human impacts are increasingly being felt in more and more sites across the planet. In the early 1990s, several organizations united to help protect the world's biodiversity. Their aim was not just to preserve the rich diversity of life, but to conserve it in the name of finding new sources to help treat human diseases. Today, some 40 to 50% of drugs in use originated from natural products. The International Cooperative Biodiversity Groups, or ICBG, was launched in 1992 as an acknowledgement that many novel compounds in nature are vanishing as habitat is lost and species go extinct. At several sites around the world, the ICBG program works to conserve biodiversity, train young scientists, and foster growth in economically disadvantaged countries. Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego scientist Bill Gerwick has overseen one of the most successful ICBG programs at a research site in Panama. There, researchers are exploring the vast richness of Panama's wilderness in the search for treatments to a variety of human diseases.
5: fortunate, very uh, 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 grateful to uh, receive continued funding on this program, and it's been really quite successful in discovering new lead compounds in cancer and tropical diseases like malaria, Leishmania, schistosomiasis, disease, which has become the focus of our program in Panama. Many Panamanians suffer from these diseases and uh, We're looking to their biodiversity to help find new cures and treatments for those very same diseases. We all know the Panama Canal, uh, and that's what we think of when we hear the country of Panama, but it's only a very small part of the country. And having been there now quite a number of times over the years, uh, I've come to realize that Panama is an amazingly uh, remote part of the world with uh, many parts of it uh, just very inaccessible by any kind of vehicle, you really have to hike uh, to these spots or take uh, boats uh, from uh, distant locations.
8: Perhaps the best example of the success of Gerwick's ICBG program in Panama is a cancer drug candidate discovered in a remote island off the Central American country's coast. It's here in the island of Coiba's undisturbed wilderness that a substance was found unlike any the researchers had ever seen.
5: The island of uh, Cueva uh, is really a a remarkable island and uh, it's essentially uninhabited uh, except for a few prisoners that still remain there from a larger prison that used to be there. Uh, In fact that prison kind of safeguarded the island from development. There was a a possibility that island was going to be developed in a touristic sense but uh, our group in uh, concert with several other groups came together and helped to uh, first have that named a national park and then it's just so remarkable that uh, the, an international body looked at it and decided that it was meritorious for naming as a World Heritage Site. So this really puts it into a long-term conservation status. And, and it was from uh, some diving around the uh, island of uh, Cueva that we collected some thin filaments that were grouped together into a, like a it looked like somebody's hair was waving off the seafloor back and forth, and in fact it was kind of purplish-white in color, and uh, we made a collection of that and tested the uh, extract of that material. So we extract the oily constituents from that that tissue, and we found that it had amazing cancer cell toxicity uh, associated with that extract. What's most exciting about this compound, which we were pleased to call Mide, after the island of Cueva, uh, Mide A actually. Uh, is that it is a novel kind of structure. We've never seen a structure of quite this sort before. And it it kills or inhibits the division of cancer cells in a way that we've never seen before.
8: Bill Gerwick is joined at the Panamanian ICBG research program by Lena Gerwick, a Scripps biologist, and Scripps postdoctoral researcher Marcy Balunas, who also holds a postdoctoral fellowship at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama.
6: So why is it so important to, uh, to uh, uh, keep our biodiversity? And uh, sometimes that argument its hard to find good reasons for why we have that argument. I mean, things die off all the time. But when you start looking at uh, the biodiversity and the different molecules that are produced by different organisms, and then you start thinking that, okay, maybe this organism over here produces the next uh, cure for malaria. Do I really want that to die off before I know that? It is easy to understand that if your grandchild has malaria and you can find a treatment for that in an organism, you need to save that one because we don't know for the future. We need to know that we can still go to that organism and find that molecule and that might cure your grandchild
3: panama is a great place to live and to work and it's given me some really unique opportunities as a as a scientist as a postdoctoral fellow but also as a as a person living in a, in another country and learning spanish learning another language um, learning about the panamanian culture and becoming part of this culture as a as a u.s citizen abroad so working in panama it's an adventure every day i have adventures in the city so urban adventures and i have adventures during hiking trips or during marine collection trips and we go to places that are amazingly wonderful and some of which have been protected by the panamanian government and therefore have really stayed in a pristine condition where we're seeing things like sharks and rays and and um, all sorts of different organisms and it's really an amazing experience
0: If you would like more information on any of the stories you've just seen, go to our website at uctv.tv. That's our program for tonight. Join us next time for more from the University of California. Until then, thank you and good night.